Turn to Genesis chapter 6, and as the kids are heading out to their classes, um, I'll just summarize real quick what Kyle was referring to. There was a deer walked by, and then I interacted with it, and the deer stopped walking by. So, Yeah, there's a short and sweet condensers, yes. Let's just put it this way, it was so close that when I brought up the uh, crossbow to fire, there was nothing but brown in the scope. So, wow, I was like, here we go, Lord, all right. Um, and I had two great helpers, Joey and my son, were out there to help drag it around, so I thank them for it. Uh, let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we will hop right into our text here. Dear Holy Father, thank you so much again for all the blessings you've given us. As we've been reminded of that blessed assurance that we have in you, that the fact that because you live that we can face tomorrow and we can not wonder and wander in this world, but we can know for sure that you are on your throne. And then the reminder again that every day we need you. Help us as we even look at this text. And as there's been many things said about this text, many um, just decisions out of what does this text mean and what does it point to? Help us to not forget the larger picture. That you entered in this world to save sinners. And the grace that we see even in this text. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When I lived on the East Coast, we would have a little bit more of these. We'd have hurricanes that would come up and things like that. But when we moved to the Midwest here, you just have tornadoes that just randomly show up. At least on the East Coast, you would hear about it for days and days and days leading up to it. But here they just happened. All right. And when these storms come through and all of a sudden everything gets destroyed, uh, towns are destroyed, homes are destroyed and everything else. It's very interesting what follows because humanity descends upon it. The area that was broken down. And as people are literally out, literally picking up the pieces of their home and their lives, usually who show up rather quickly are looters, trying to grab whatever's laying around that hasn't been picked up. And after the looters show up, then we have the storm-chasing contractors who show up promising we can fix things very quickly for you. For pennies on the dollar, just sign on the bottom line and you'll get a new roof, we promise. And then if the damage is not bad enough, and uh, the media just stand upon and they want to interview people and everybody goes, I cannot believe this happened, right? Even though they live on Tornado Alley. But if the damage is greater than that even, sometimes homes are completely destroyed, right? And they rip them down and no one lives there anymore. And you know who shows up next is the entrepreneur wanting to buy cheap land that he's going to rip somebody off with later, Right? And so as humanity descends upon something that is a damaging situation, what we find is as humanity gathers, we actually see the true side of humanity. And what is it? It's a bunch of sinners taking advantage of each other. And it's just, can I take advantage of you first or can I beat you to the punch? It's interesting here in our text in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we see the same thing happening. And so now let's read it together. And as I read this, I want you to just listen to everything that's going on in these four short verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they were born children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, as we've been working through Genesis, we are at our next four verses. And as we look at these four verses, there's a couple of things I want you to start to see that just immediately leap off the page. And the title of even the message today is Corruption. We're going to see corruption all over the place. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it says, When man began to multiply on the earth. All right, this idea of multiplying on the earth is something that immediately our, our brains, as we've been in Genesis, should go back to the creation mandate. What was the creation mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. And so what is man doing? They're being fruitful and multiplying. And this fruitful and multiplying is actually seen as a blessing from God. That man is actually, by God's grace, having children, and these children are having children, and they're using the resources around them for the betterment of society to the fact that society is actually flourishing enough to have more people. It's the same concept of if you are sick and unhealthy because you can't feed yourself, you're incapable of having more children because you're all just going to die. What is happening here? More and more people are, are coming about. Turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll talk about these societies that were happening. In Genesis chapter 4, in verse 17, I'm going to summarize. Cain finds a wife, and when he finds his wife in verse 14, you see him, he built a city, and they even name the city. So think about this. If you need to have a city, that means you're having buildings and structures, and you're putting them together. You're having some type of agriculture to keep people there. We're not moving as nomads. We're able to actually create enough food to feed ourselves so we don't have to be hunters and gatherers. We can literally have a spot that is able to culturing of animals and, and flock and everything. You see this in verse 20, same concept. We see here in verse 20 that children are being born, and we see one of the, the tents and the livestock that are being made. And obviously tents mean they understand how to live in such a way that they're able to continue to keep living with their livestock, moving with their livestock. Verse 21, we see that the, the playing of the lyre and the pipe. So not only do we have society going, we have music and entertainment going on. And in verse 22, we see the descendants of Cain being forgers of instruments of bronze and iron. And you see society gathering and you see inventions being done and you see metalwork happening and you're seeing entertainment and all these other things. When entertainment can only happen when you have enough food, actually not having to go hand to mouth eating. And what we're seeing is the beauty of what God had called them to and his blessing actually playing out. And it's interesting here, what happens? You would think that we would read, and when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, wonderful things were happening after wonderful thing. But what we're going to see is because of man's depravity, as man spreads out and they multiply on the earth, we're going to see that this blessing of God, of giving them this fruitfulness that he said was going to take place, is actually going to be turned into a curse. Because in Proverbs 29, 16, Solomon reminds us this, that when the wicked increase, sin increases. It's interesting, though. I think sometimes we miss, by the time we get to Genesis 6, it's like the Garden of Eden was so long ago. Now, I believe the Garden of Eden is going to be destroyed in the global flood that's going to happen, but I believe at this time, as I understand Scripture, to say, believe that the Garden of Eden is still around during this time. And you would think 
that as the earth is being filled, you would think that people would go, hey, remember that garden that we could literally go see where there's a flaming sword and an angel blocking the way to the tree of life. You would think that the people would go, hey, let's not disobey God. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve. They literally have a visible picture in front of them. A thing that they can go back and look at. Remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden as descendants of Adam and Eve. We're descendants of Cain and they're descendants of Seth. That they would literally see this in front of them. But what we see there is the complete and utter blindness of sin that causes man to not obey God. You would think as you're reading this that the next line should be that was man multiplied on the earth, you would think that man lived soberly remembering the command that was broken by Adam and Eve. You would think that there'd be a sobriety of that because they're going, hey, remember what happened there, let's not do that again. But again, the depth of man's sinfulness, the blindness of sin, and man's desire to rebel against God, we will see is at the very heart of humanity. And so as society is increasing, as industry is increasing, as men are building cities, they're producing enough food, civilization is gaining ground enough to spread to the ends of the earth concept that is happening here. Instead of good increasing, what are we going to see? We're going to see that sadly sin increases. And we're going to go, what is that sin that is increasing? And I'm going to argue that it's the same sin that's going to happen after the flood when man gathers together and they build the Tower of Babel. It's a sin of pride. Look at what we have done. Look at what we have accomplished. And man, as it starts, as mankind starts to look at what they have accomplished, what they have done, we start to see this utter rebellion against God down to the very core. And notice where the rebellion is. It's in marriage. You would think of all the other opportunities going on here that they could rebel against God. They rebel in the aspect of marriage here. And so what we want to do is we want to look at where, what is going on here with the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now, I want to just, as we look at point number two here, we're going to see that there's wickedness everywhere. And I need to, we need to give you a little bit of a side note here on this text. Some of you, this, if you are new here, it is not that we just picked... Genesis 6, 1 through 4 to be going through, all right? There's a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. We just skip that because there's some debate on this. And so let's just move on. Let's get to Noah and the flood and we'll move on. But we, we believe that God has called us to go verse by verse, line by line. And I'm not apologizing that you're here. And we're going to talk about Nephilim. We're going to talk about the sons of, of God. And we're going to talk about the daughters of man and what's going on in their inner marriage and everything else that's going on here. Because we believe that every Scripture, all Scripture is God-given, is profitable, all right? And so as we walk through this, let's talk about these things in front of us. And now, when we say this, there are three major groupings of people here that we just have to go, all right, this is in the text, let's start working through it. But as we work through it, here's what I want to make sure we understand. The Bible is incredibly clear, all right? We understand that there's a group called Sons of God, all right? We also have a group called Daughters of Man, and we have a group called the Nephilim, all right? This is not gibberish. I want to be clear on this. Now, there's arguments of what are they, right? But it's not as if the Bible is confusing that we can't at least get ourselves as we start to understand Scripture, because what we will do here, and you'll see in a minute, we, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So what you do is when you come up to the idea of sons of God, guess what you do? 
you look at where else this is being used in Scripture to help bring light, if you're not clear. When you get to daughters of man, you want to look where that is being done if it's not clear. All right? I think it's a little bit clearer. Daughters of man is a little bit clearer than sons of God. All right, then you get this whole group of Nephilim. You're going to go, well, where are they talked about as well? So there are two major interpretations in this passage, all right? And you'll see those in your notes there. The first one of trying to figure out who are these sons of God. There is the Jewish view, and then, we would, then there's what is called the more recent view. And I mean recent, we're talking several thousand years old, but it's just more recent than the Jewish. All right, some may also say their traditional view, if you see these. So here's where they come. All right, the Jewish view. Now, the Jewish view is going to be strongly influenced by a uh, historical book called the Book of Enoch. And the Jewish view at the time would call the sons of God, they would be considered to be angelic beings. And the reason they get the sons of God being angelic beings, if you were to go to Job verses 1-6 or 2-1, Job there, when he's writing, when all of the angelic world gathers together, around the throne of God, the sons of God there are referred to as angels. And so the book of Enoch, which is not a canonical book, meaning a part of the Bible, had a strong influence on saying that what is going on here are fallen angels marrying human women, creating a rebellious race. So there, that's one interpretation of the text, arguing from the Job perspective. Then you have the more recent view, or, or known as a traditional view, and this here you see, if you were to follow through the argument of the text, you have in Genesis chapter 4, talking about the sons and the descendants of Cain. You then in Genesis chapter 5, talking about the descendants of Seth. Then if you're following that argument, you come into these two groups of people, and the sons of God would be then descendants of Seth, the faithful line, and the daughters of man would be the descendants of Cain, the unfaithful line. And so we have the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain, creating a, again, rebellious race. So either end, you're ending with a great rebellion against God. It's interesting, Moses uses the term son of God one other place in his writing, and that's in Deuteronomy, where he's speaking of the sons of God referring to the Israelites. And so as this goes back and forth through that, I would argue, if you're wondering where I stand, I would argue with the more recent, the traditional view of saying that the flow of the text would argue that it would be the sons of God being the line of Seth and the daughters of man being the line of Cain. Now, again, that is one because this gets debated over and over and over again in our world that we live in. Um, this is the one that if you've ever been in a Bible study and you want to throw the teacher a curve, all right, bring up who are the sons of God and the daughters of man. But I would, I would argue, I think the text clearly teaches us as we move through that. But at the end of the day, here's what we're left with. Whatever's happening here is a rebellion against God. Mankind is rebelling against his creator. Even if it is fallen angels, guess what they're doing? Rebelling. If it's man, guess what he's doing? Rebelling. Humanity is rebelling against God. Now, we haven't solved, though, this second group here, or third group here, is the Nephilim. So it says in verse 4 there, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. The idea of Nephilim, that word can be translated either giants or fallen ones. Um, the, uh, this word also then as you start doing a study and seeing how this word is used throughout Scripture, there's another time where they use the term Nephilim. That is when, when Moses and the tribes of Israel about ready to enter into the promised land. Remember they send in 12 spies and the 12 spies are scouring out the land. 
and they come back and they're panicked. Remember Joshua and Caleb come back and say, no, God is for us. We can do this. And 10 spies come back and they are just going, it is, it is a mess in there. We do not want to go in. And they use this term that there are Nephilim or giants in the land. All right. And so we have this, we have this group that is called the Nephilim. Some like to try to tie it to some type of offspring of the of the sons of God and the daughters of man, but I would argue the text does not lead us to that. The text just says there's a group called the Nephilim that are roaming the earth at this time. And so what we look at when we see things like this is this. To summarize all of this, before we move to what I think is the beautiful grace of God, mankind at this time is living hundreds and hundreds of years. And as they're living hundreds and hundreds of years, their rebellion against God is becoming even greater. The, the length of man at this time, some are living up to 900 years, and as they're living up to 900 years old, they are learning how to rebel and how to be sinful at a degree that is even greater than we've ever seen. Because here's the thing, let's look at our own lives. How many things are forgotten from one generation to the next is because literally we don't overlap each other. But when you have generation after generation overlapping each other, Sadly, instead of passing on God-honoring information, what are we seeing? Evil upon evil abounding. Evil that is so great that God were to look at mankind and say, not only must I judge them, I must wipe them off the face of the earth. Because again, as the wicked increases, so does sin. And that's the point I think we need to make sure we understand. Whatever group and wherever spot you lie on this, at the end of the day, it is incredibly clear. That when mankind is left to his own devices, disaster happens. But in the middle of this dark time, and I want to I steal back to an example that Pastor Caleb gave us. Remember how he was talking about how, as we're reading the Bible, we almost need to remind ourselves back as, as he was talking about, he used the example of the uh, Lord of the Rings series, and as the, the writers are writing the movies series that were going on there, as you would all of a sudden see a light of hope and you'd hear the Shire music playing. In the background, what we have is we have a little bit of a music switch in this. You have evil, 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 and God is going to speak. And I think you need to hear the beauty of God's grace being played out there. If we had a theme for God's grace being played out in verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. What we see here is point number three is God's grace towards man. You may sit there and go, well, what, what's going on here? Again, sadly, there are two views on this that can be either way. This is why this, these last four verses are some of the more hotly talked about conversations of the Bible of what is it actually referring to. One could be God is limiting man's life to 120 years. The reason is very shortly after the flood, you have days of man dropping. They're, they are not living very long anymore, and they're they go from 900 years, and now we're down by the time of Joseph. You're looking at about 90 and so forth, and man's ages are no longer. That is one interpretation. The other one could also be that 120 years from that time that God condemns man, is that's when the flood is going to come. And so either way you have there is you have that God telling that there's judgment coming or God is limiting man's life. And why is the reason for this limiting of man's life? To stop wickedness. Because here's what's happening. It doesn't matter where you take or what view you have on that 120 years. Here's what is in front of us. Man is rebelling against his creator. 
to the point where God is saying that in a time period to come, I will destroy mankind. And we will find out later that Noah was able to stand and preach repentance for a hundred years, even though the death knoll had been given, that man was rebelling against their creator, judgment must come. And what do we see? God in his grace and his long suffering, giving man more than abundant time to repent. And I would argue, just like in the days of Noah, we are living there as well. We are living in a time that the Bible calls a time of where men are being called to repent all around. Judgment is coming. Now is the day of salvation. This is the same call that Noah is going to be saying. The rain is coming. A flood is coming. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. Get in the ark. We have not only a visual picture of the ark, we have Christ himself where only those who are in Christ will be saved. In front of us right now is how long will you, those of you who do not know God, how long will you teeter between two sides? And now I want to make sure we're clear on this. Because even if we were to say that it's 120 years from now, the judgment is going to come, or man will be limited 120 years, here's the part I want to make sure we're clear on. We do not serve a bipolar God. And here's what I mean by this. So when we think of God's long-suffering, all right, because right now, the world we live in is evil enough that the righteousness of God is demanded that something be done. But why is he not doing something? Why has he not come and judged mankind? I mean, we, you could just, if I were to list all of the sins that our whole world has committed this past week, all the atrocities and everything else, you would say, where is God? And we would say he is on his throne. He is being long-suffering and gracious and incredibly merciful, calling mankind to repent. But it is not that he is sitting there saying, listen, guys, I'd really like to save, save you because my judgment's coming and I can't stop my judgment. And like, I'm sorry that I have to judge you. No, that is not God at all. We have God on his throne who said, now is the day of repentance and my mercy and grace are being poured out. But because I am a good and righteous and holy God, my judgment will come and it will be incredibly perfect and righteous. Not one person will be judged who does not fall under the judgment of God perfectly and righteously. There will be no injustice when he comes. And what we see here is a call for all of us, a call to repent. This is what the communion table reminds us all of every single time we go to it. This is why we need to do this over and over and over again, because the Christian walk is one of repentance. Because I would argue as well, if you were at this time too, you would be rebelling against Almighty God. One of my favorite lines of one of the songs that was written, when it was talking about the crucifixion of Christ, and in this, in this song that was written, it says, I hear my mocking voice calling out amongst the scoffers. And this idea that if you were at the crucifixion of Christ, what would you be doing? The answer is you would be mocking him as well because of our own sinful hearts. It's only by the grace of God that has opened our eyes to see this. Because when we see passages like this, we should not look down our proverbial noses and go, oh, look how evil they were. We should say, look at us ourselves, a rotten, evil sinner rebelling against God on a daily basis. Going against his commands. And it's interesting, even at the end of verse 4 there, these were mighty men 
were of old men of renown speaking about these people that live there and how did they use their strength? How did they use their renown? But to do evil upon evil upon evil. That is why each one of us is called to use the strength that God has given us spiritually and physically to make a difference in the world around us, pointing people to him. As the phrase continually goes, is that are we going to stand for the easier wrong or the harder right? Are we going to use our strength to call the world to repentance and sharing the gospel? Or are we just going to give way? And what we see here is sadly it is people giving way after way after way they give to the point where you get down to one faithful family and Noah was the one who found grace in the eyes of the Lord over a whole world. How did it get to that? It got that way by compromise after compromise after compromise. And when we read passages like this, it is one small compromise that we think, oh, that's not going to make that big of a difference. But it is generation after generation after generation of compromise. And so in front of us is the question every single time. We read a text like this. Now, we could have years talking about the Nephilim and all that kind of stuff, and that's fun and exciting and all those other things. But you know what that is a distraction to, sadly? The truth that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Because what is this text reminding us of? These group of people were incredibly wicked, called and called upon them the judgment of Almighty God. And so the line that I want to leave us with, the line that I want to remind us of, is a line that we have hopefully said so many times that we do not need to have it said again. You'll see that there in your, what did we learn today? Everything God does is perfect. So that means when he allows man to multiply on the face of the earth, did he mess up? No. Everything God does is perfect and is completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. Because God, just as we can count on his grace and mercy, we can also count on his judgment as well. And he is just as good in both ways. Because if he were not to judge, his grace has no meaning. If he were not to judge, his mercy has no meaning. And that's when we come to the table here again. It reminds us of that beautiful, salvific grace that he so freely gives. And my call to you is if you do not know him, today can be your day of salvation. Run to him and to him alone for your salvation. Let's pray. Dearly Father, there are so many things in front of us that can easily trip us up. So many things in front of us that can easily distract us. Help us to stand. To stand in the gap and make a difference. To stand in the gap for the truth. To understand that it is by you and you alone that we live. And to understand that the wickedness that is all around us is so deceiving. May we be people of the truth. Thank you for this table and what it reminds us of. In your son's name we pray. Amen.